Welcome to Northridge Church Podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. For more information, visit us online at northridgethomaston.com. Now prepare your heart as we dive into God's Word. You may be seated. I don't know if y'all could figure by now what the title of my sermon will be. Man, come on, just go ahead and call it, It Ain't Over Yet. Y'all look to your neighbor and tell him, say, it ain't over. We've been spending a few weeks discussing this idea of comfort zone and kind of recognizing the signs of complacency and apathy and things that come out of just getting too comfortable in life, the dangers that uh, exist in the comfort zone. Week three, we expose the enemy for who he is. He's a liar. He's the father of all lies. He's a deceiver. He's the accuser of the brethren. Then last week, we talked about the things that he wants from you that he can't have. He wants your worship. He wants your evangelism. He wants your joy. He wants your family. Can I tell you, there's one other thing, and I believe it's greater than all of that. He wants you to quit. He wants you to throw in the towel. He wants you to surrender. See, for the Christian today, Quitting should not be something as a consideration. It shouldn't be in our grammar. It shouldn't be something that we consider. And the reason for that is because there are souls that depend on our ability to persevere. It's not always about just us persevering. It's about the end of that, the the so that that we often say around here. It's because people need to hear the gospel. I don't know if it's your job today. I don't know if it's marriage. I don't know if it's project that God has given you. I don't know if it's quitting on church or quitting on the Lord or or maybe even today that there's someone in this room or someone listening that's even thought about quitting on life. It happens. There's so many things in life that hinge on your ability to persevere. And maybe you don't even realize it. Maybe you don't realize how valuable this thing is that you're going through and why the enemy so desperately wants to rob you and to rob those around you. There's a uh, passage, and we're going to read from 2 Chronicles chapter 15. There's a woman named, just so you understand where we're coming from, there was a woman named Ruth, who there's a book of the Bible named after her, and the theme of that book is Kinsman Redeemer, and it's a type of Christ. It would be one who would be the first of kin in the line. It would also be one who would be willing to buy back or to purchase that birthright. And it's a picture of what Jesus did for you and I, for the church, to buy back that birthright of being one with God, that which was lost in the, in the garden. Ruth ends up marrying a, a guy named Boaz, and the two of them have a son named Obed, and then out of Obed has a son named Jesse. And Jesse has sons, one of which was David, who went on to be the king of Israel. And very important to understand that because from that thread and that lineage, we find Jesus the Christ coming from. If you really look at all the twists and the turns and read into Matthew chapter one and you'll see the lineage of Christ and you'll see four women of ill repute, women who came from the worst of scenarios like Ruth, who was a Moabite, a product of incest. You'll you'll learn about Rahab, who was a harlot. You'll you'll learn about um, Tamar, who who deceived her father-in-law to have sexual relationship with her father-in-law to bring forth that promise, and on and on and on. And then you'll find that fifth woman, Mary, who found favor in the sight of the Lord. So when you hear King David or the root of David, you'll understand the processes that had to work out for us to have Christ. 
And so now we've seen a divided kingdom, northern Israel, and then the southern kingdom was Judah. This is an important kingdom because Jesus would come as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, when it divided, there were three kings, Asa being the third. The ones before that was Rehoboam, and he was a terrible, dreadful, evil king. His son Abijah, who became the second king, and of course Asa, who we're going to read about, was the third king. Out of all of the kings of Israel and Judah, probably 93% of them were evil. There were just a very small handful that found favor in the sight of the Lord or did right as Asa did in the sight of the Lord. And so we pick up in that part of Chronicles, which is just that chronicling the lineage, the kingship, the priestly uh, chain that brought us to the high priest, the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus. So if you would stand with me, I'm going to read Second Chronicles chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 2 through 7, really just kind of as a basis for where we're going to hang our hat today on this message. It says that when he went out to meet Asa and said to him, hear me, Asa, and all of Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you're with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest, without law. But in their trouble, they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him. He was found by them. And in those times, there was no peace to the one who went out, nor to the one who came in. But great turmoil was on all of the inhabitants of the land. The reason I read this particular text is because I feel like it's somewhat of a cross-section of our culture today and the days in which we live, the times that we're seeing unfold before us. Listen and see if this sounds uh, any, any bit similar to us. He says, so nation was destroyed by nation and city by city. For God troubled them with adversity. But watch this. But you be strong. And do not let your hands grow weak. There's another translation that says, and do not quit. For your work shall be rewarded. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, help me today to rightly divide this word with power and with truth. Change us, Lord. Start with me. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. You may be seated. God sent me here today to tell somebody it ain't over until he says it's over. Song you heard, Stephanie and I, we were riding uh, around in the last few weeks and uh, ministering around different states, and we're riding down the road. I don't, I don't really remember exactly where we heard the song, but it, but it really ignited both our passions, and we listened to it so many times till finally I sent it to Ashley and to the team, and it just, I pray that it blessed you. It, it kind of comes back from an old, soulful gospel tune from the 80s, but man, oh man, the power within that song to just speak to somebody's heart today, that there's somebody in the house that needs to hear that, hey, you don't have to give up. You don't have to believe the enemy's lies any further. You just need to take one more step because that's the commonality we have is that though we have all come to the point of wanting to throw in the towel at some way or some fashion, whether it be marriage, whether it be the Lord, whether it be your faith, it, it, the thing that changed was that you took one more step and that's what has gotten you here today. And I'm gonna unpack a few scenarios, if I may, today that kind of deal with where we are living in our life and what we need to do to come out. Number one, I believe it ain't over even when you're facing life's biggest giants. Giants of our life may look different from one family to the next, one person to the next, but they're really all the same. It's just a bully. It's just a person that has come to defy our God and defy our life as children of God. 
In 1 Samuel, you know the story, probably the biggest story in Scripture that lends itself to this giant moment, chapter 17, verses 33. And of course, it's a picture of David, who I want you to understand something because this is profound as we read into this text, is that David was one of Jesse's sons, and when Samuel the prophet came to anoint the next king, he came and he asked Jesse, he said, bring all of your sons out because one of them is going to be the next king for, to, release, to release Saul. And the whole process ensued, and each one, one by one, would come, and, and, and Samuel would look at him and say, this is not the one. All the way to the point that he had to reiterate and re-ask or re-invite the question to Jesse, say, none of your sons, but I feel like there's one more. Is there one more son? Oh, yeah, there's David. How'd you like to be that kid? Like He, he, he was so discarded, so unqualified, so dismissed, so ill-equipped, that not only was it the least of the tribes, he was the least of the least within the tribe. And yet that's the one. That was the one that God wanted to anoint. And when he came forth, the Bible calls him this little, ruddy little boy. And Samuel said, this is the man. And he anointed him to be king over all of Israel. So we pick up here. As he's now been called into this valley of Elah where he's going to face this giant. He goes to deliver a message to his brothers, and when he gets there, he finds the host of Israel's army seeing uh, an enemy so big that he can't be defeated. Yet as David comes on the scene, he sees an enemy so big that he can't be missed. He sees the target. He doesn't see the obstacle. He sees through a different eye, through a different lens. And he tells Saul, he says, I can do this. Let me pick up in that verse. Saul said to David, said, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, underscore that. He's diminishing his worth because of his age. He said, but he is a great man of war from his youth. And David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. When the lion or bear came and took the lamb out of the flock, David said, I went out after it and I struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and I struck it and killed it. Underline this, your servant has killed both lion and bear. So this uncircumcised Philistine, he will be like one of them. Seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, watch this, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go. And may the Lord be with you. Not only did David start out unqualified, it's revisited again here by King Saul. You're but a youth. You don't have have the equipment. He even tried to give him his armor. Remember what David said? David said, I I can't wear this. I have not tried it. I've not tried this. There's some things I know, but this is not one of them. This Goliath was standing somewhat nine feet in front of him in this valley of Elah. And he's there to defy the armies of Israel. Defy the God of Israel. And though he was too young, though he was unqualified, though he was ill-equipped, does this, does this ring a bell in any of our hearts today? I think that's what the enemy uses against us. You're not, you're not worthy, or you're not clean enough, or you're not right enough, or you're not the right color, or, or your daddy was this, or your mama did that, or you don't have the money to do it, or you don't have the tenacity to do it. I mean, he gives you all of the reasons why you're unqualified, but the reality is, is God doesn't qual- call the qualified, he qualifies the call. He calls those that are not just so great in ability, but rather those that are just simply available. 
And I don't know about you, but I can testify that today. God doesn't wait for you to get it all squared away before you serve him. In fact, I believe with all of my heart, sometimes he wants us in the lowest of the most broken moments because that's when we become pliable in the hands of God. In the hands of God. When facing a giant that should surely bring your demise, you need but one truth to persevere. You know what it is? The same God that delivered you in the past will do it again. Here's what I said to the first service, and I believe this to be true. I think sometimes we might need to not always pray ourselves out of the battles with the lions and with the bears because it's the fights with the lions and the bears that equip us and give us the spiritual confidence to overcome the biggest giant that's to come. Sometime in our life, when we're going through these struggles, we realize that that God is allowing these things to come into our path so we can see that we can be victorious in the small things, and then he'll bring us to the big moments, and finally, at those moments, those moments that really matter, really count the most, that's the moments that we can go back and say, wait a minute, he's taken me through some things before, and if he delivered me there, then I believe he'll do it again. I need somebody to say he'll do it again. again. Furthermore, going back to the place where you almost quit. Now, I want to ask you again. The commonality with us is that all of us have been through trials. All of us have been through hardships. All of us have been through temptations. All of us have faced giants in our life. And I suspect most of us have come to a point at some point in our life where we've thought about throwing in the towel. We've thought about giving up. And the difference is today that each one of us has taken one more step. Here's what I want you to go back and survey today. What was it that made you take that one more step? Was it just simply the still, small voice of God? Was it some big catastrophic moment where God said, no, I'm going to deliver you? What was it? Because that's what you got to pick up today to go on another day. See, we were talking this morning in our prayer time, and, and it, real, it came to the realization that out of this group that's in this room today, there are people in this very room that if God doesn't move, and God doesn't intervene, that marriages are over today in this room. There are daddies, there are husbands that have thought about and contemplated moving on down the road and just shutting it all down and walking away. But what hangs in the balance? Like David... David did something that I found quite profound when Stephanie and I and several of our church members went to Israel several years ago. We went to the Valley of Elah. It was very interesting because, and and I don't say this to speak down on what was going on, but they they were doing this acting out over in the valley where the actual battle would have taken place. So they were taking people and they said, okay, you're David and, and, and you're Goliath and you're the people and you're the Philistines and you're the Israelites and you're Saul and, and kind of assigned some. And I, to me, it just there was something in the moment. I just wasn't connecting to that. So I kind of just walked away. And I walked over into the valley of Elah, into the brook, the exact place where David would have picked up this stone. And what was interesting about it was it was completely dry. But I noticed very quickly the stones that were in this brook were completely different than the stones that were on the outside on the bank. Stones on the bank were very uh, perforated. They were, they were jagged and they were rough and they almost had holes in them and they were kind of almost like lava rock or something. It was just very distorted. 
But the stones that were in the brook were all smooth. And just in that moment, I had just a, a moment to kind of the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, Mark, the reason that these stones are smooth is because in the rainy season, when that water floods down, those big flash floods, it takes these stones and it, and it runs them around and bumps them against one another and against the ground and against the, the surface and, and the, the water that pushes against them and knocks off those rough edges so that they can become smooth. Mark, that's what your trials are doing in your life. You're trying to pray it out, but really, I'm trying to make you smooth. Why does that matter? Because what David knew and the reason he went to the brook was because he knew that those stones that were smooth, they would fly straighter. They would have a smoother trajectory and they'd be able to hit the target that he wanted them to hit. But here's what's interesting. When David went into that brook, he, how many stones did he pick up? He didn't pick up one. He didn't pick up two. He picked up five. Five is the number for grace. I'd like to think that he knew in the moment when he picked up those five stones, that he was picking up the grace of an almighty God, the one who would go before him. Give him that confidence to take one more step forward. Because here's what's interesting. Does anybody know how many stones he wailed that day at the giant? Oh, just one. He picked up five, but he would only take one. And the story went on because he didn't merely knock him down. He didn't merely knock him off of his feet. But he picked up the sword that Goliath had that, made, that weighed nearly two-thirds of his weight. And he picked up, watch this, the very thing that the enemy was going to use to kill him. You heard that in Genesis 50, 20, what the enemy meant for harm, God turned for good so that many may be saved. He picks up that sword and he walks over and he beheads him. I wonder how many giants we have slain in our life in faith by grace and we've taken them down only for them to rise up and live and come against us another day. See, I love that part of the story because it is really overlooked that he picked up the grace, he picked up those things that had been tested, he picked up that which he was competent, not confident, competent in, because here's what God knew. God made him uh, one who would carry a sling. He didn't make him a soldier because the greatest miracle was not for one of the Israelite soldiers to go and knock this guy down, but this little boy who picked up the grace and the mercy and the power and the competence of God, and he slung one stone, but watch this, he be he headed it because he said, you know what? You've defied my God. You're not coming back to do it another day. And, and I say that because I feel like there's a time where we need to go back to that moment. That thing that keeps showing its head into our life. It's time to cut the head off of it. Number two, it ain't over even when you're surrounded by the enemy. The Apostle Paul found himself over and over and over and again surrounded by the enemy. I love, I love Paul's discourse as he speaks to the people and he says, you know, I've been, I've been shipwrecked. I've been bitten by serpents. I've been imprisoned. I've been stoned. All of these things. And listen to what he says. But they are mere light afflictions compared to the glory that will be revealed in that final day. That's the guy that wrote this. And listen to what he said. And I wrote this in a different translation because I want you to grab onto these words. He says, we, we are pressed on every side. We're surrounded by troubles, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. 
Listen to this one. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. The enemy is coming after you. Remember, we, we said his MO is to torment you. He's relentless. He's orchestrated. For the 6,000 years he's been here, he's not done anything new. What he tempted and caused King David to fall with, he's using against men of God today because it's worked over and over and over. But he's a defeated foe. So even though you're surrounded on every side, there's a way out. When I was a kid, my mom had a book that sat on our end table, our coffee table, if you will, and there with the Bible, there's only one book, and it was Billy Graham's book entitled Angels. Has anybody ever seen or read that book? Anybody? In the book, he, he told a story of a man named John Patton. John was a Scottish missionary to the South Pacific Islands. There were about 26 small islands there, one main island, and then 25 others that somewhat connected it through uh, land masses and ease to get from one to the other. In 1858, he was called to go and take the gospel to a group of cannibals, these, these savages, really savages, I know that that was language that was often used by newcomers into a, to a world. It was used by the Spanish as they came here and found Indians on our land. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who killed people and who ate them. 1858. Three months after he got there, his wife went into labor, had their son, and she died while giving birth. 31 days later, her son died. I wonder at that moment, would, would John Patton have just maybe started to reevaluate? Because sometimes, Cody, what we do is when we go through those moments like that, we start to question, God, did I mishear you? Did I, did I miss it? Am, am I here because of my own volition and my own desire to do something great under the banner of you, but yet I, I missed it? But something in him. Holy Spirit just caused him to lean into it and just realize that, no, the opposite was true. That the attack of the enemy was so great and so vast and so hard because he knew what John Patton was going to do. I've said this before, the enemy's not afraid of me, he's not afraid of you, but he is afraid of who you can become in Christ if you'll persevere and keep going. He's afraid of who your children are going to be. Listen, too many of us hang on that verse of, of what happens when, when fathers sin, and it says that their sin is visited by the father to the third and the fourth generations, and we stop there, Albert. Why do we stop there without reading the rest? And it says, but God will bless them to a thousand generations for those who love the Lord. You don't have to live in that generational curse. You just got to decide to love the Lord, and he'll bless you to a thousand generations. And John Patton was standing in the moment of decision. And he leaned in. He later, later met a woman named Maggie and he married her. They began to bring other missionaries from Scotland and from England and from different parts of cultures in, U, in the U.S. at the time. They built a camp of missionaries and they trained them in the language. And on one dreadful night at their base camp of their mission houses, 
Hundreds of missionaries gathered. They hear in the jungles, as it were, this one particular group that they had not been able to reach. They couldn't even get close to them. They heard them beating on trees and on trunks of trees and the noise and the sounds. They knew exactly what it meant. It it meant attack was imminent. So John Patton and his wife Maggie stood up and and they looked and they saw that they were absolutely surrounded. And at any moment, they were going to come run through the camp and no doubt would be able to kill them all with ease. Outnumbered, surrounded, perplexed. They did only what they knew to do. They prayed. They got on their faces at his own words. He said, and we prayed until we no longer heard the murmurings of those warriors. One account says that they probably prayed for five and a half hours and then it quit. The next morning around 6 a.m., he goes out and spears were lying on the ground. And those men had retreated and there was nothing he could tell his, his folks. He, he just knew that it had happened. Almost three years went by. And one day while they're out communing with the people and taking items for barter and trying to communicate, they ran across that village chief. And it was the right moment. The Holy Spirit had broken this man down, this chief, and he wanted to hear what John Patton would say, and why was he still here? Who, who was it that was making him stay? And he shared Jesus with him. And that chief came to accept Jesus Christ as the Lord of his life. And John Patton knew, he said, if this chief comes to the saving knowledge of Christ, he's going to, he's going to expel the lies of the enemy and it's going to go faster than they, they could ever imagine. He brought the chief to the compound and as he walked in, he said the chief was looking around. He sat down, he ordered this big meal and and he honored this chief and he got up the the courage to say, about about three years ago, chief, there was a a moment where you came to attack us. What was it that made you lay your spears down and run? He said, oh, that's easy. It It was the guards that you had sent out that were shiny brass fixtures. They were shining in all of their attire, their swords drawn, and they had surrounded your camp. And we knew there was nothing we could do to come against them. And John Patton looked at him. He said, no. We prayed, and God sent his angels to guard us and to protect us from that moment. You say, Mark, does that really happen? Well, in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 11, it happened with Elisha. Elijah was in Dothan and he was there asleep and he was rested because he, he knew that he'd been called to be what he was and that there was going to be dangers at every turn. And the Syrian uh, king sent all of his strongest warriors to surround Dothan and to take out this king, I mean, this man of God and his servant. At some point in time in the morning, the, the servant came out of the tent where Elijah laid and he looked up and he saw that he was surrounded at every turn by these soldiers that were getting ready to destroy them. And he says in 2 Kings chapter 6, he said, then Elijah prayed, oh Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and of chariots all around Elijah. 
See, what had happened in that moment was when he came out, he only saw the enemy. And Elijah said, no, I pray that you open his eyes that he may see what's going on. And surrounding him was a host of angelic beings arrayed in battle attire, swords thrown, cast them with blindness. What the enemy didn't want John to know is that a few years later, in 1899, all of the bears that he had fought all of the lions he had faced, all of the savage warriors who wanted to take his life and use their heads as trophies. It was said in 1899, just a few years before John passed away, that the entire island, 100% of the island, had converted to Christianity. And that out of the 26 islands represented in that little chain of islands there in the South Pacific, 23 of them have been fully converted to Christianity. See, what the enemy knows is that there's something profound coming through you. And that the enemy coming against you is not arbitrary at all. It's strategic and it's intentional and it's purposed and it's deliberate and it's orchestrated. And can I just offer you a sidebar to that? And it's not arguing about denomination. The enemy is well old, ready to go in step. But God is faithful and he's greater. And he that is in me is greater than he that is in the world. The power that we have in us is capable It's more than capable to overthrow and to conquer literally with one prayer. With one word, it's over. Not not you're over, but the attack is over. But you gotta go one step further and say, why does the enemy want me? Why does he want my kids? Why does he want my marriage? See, that's the part you've gotta reconcile today. You cannot just look at this and think that the enemy's just attacking you or God's mad at you and it's just random in all of this story. It's purposed. Go back to that time again when you were under the greatest attack of your life and look at it now. How many of you have persevered and what's come of it? Look at your kids now. Look at your marriage now. It ain't over until he says it's over. It ain't over even when you see no way out. In fact, I say before you today that the times where I saw no way out is really the times where God did his greatest work. And and I think, and I I think I can say this today, I don't think he'd have it any other way to allow us to get in those hopeless moments so we can see the hope of glory. To get in those moments of total just you look, maybe your kids, maybe you've been there, and just your kids look at you and say, What now, Dad? And you go, I don't know. Well, there's nothing. I think, I think God likes those moments. Because that's the moments He can show up and say, Let me show you who I am. Let me show you what I can do. And then it's unequivocal. There's no question about who did the work. I quoted this. A moment ago, same guy writing Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he said, there's no temptation taking you, but such is common to man. 
See, that's, that's the part the enemy doesn't want you to hear today is that what you're going through, they are too. What you've been through, they're going through now. And it's, and it's not random acts of, of attacks. It's, it's what's this? It's, it's a cumulative effort to stifle and to shut down the cause of Christ. But watch this. On, on the Victoria side, there's no comfort that has randomly come my way, but rather a comfort that God has comforted me with so that I may be able to comfort others in their time. See, really, it was a time of training. It was a time of equipping. It was a time of, 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 of arming me up. The guy who's been the addict, the alcoholic who's stepped out of it and who's not willing to speak death over himself or his family every single day of his life. But the guy who says, I've truly been delivered. And if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, all things are made new. That guy, see, that guy can look backwards and say, oh, I remember where I was. But not only that, guess what's going to happen? There's going to be other people that start coming into your life and you're going to go, oh, you have no idea what I've been through. And you get to ease in and go, yeah, I do actually. I know exactly where you are because I've been there. Now, I don't mean to say that God wants you to go through those things so that you can help others, but I'm saying even though you did, God's bringing you out, sitting your feet upon a rock so that you can be that person someone else can lean on. Nobody wants to share their dirty laundry all the time and tell their terrible stories about when you were messed up and when, but I'm gonna tell you something. It may be the very thing they need to hear. Because that's the victory. That you are so far gone. He says, there's nothing that's taken you but such as common to man. But God is faithful. Everybody say, God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you're able. And with that temptation, he'll always make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. More oftentimes than not, the way out is simply coming to the end of trusting yourself. God will bring you to the end of yourself and you realize you can't fix it. You realize that your methods and your ways got you in the mess in the first time. And that coming to the end of yourself is the beginning of trusting him fully. See, as a parent, we're the same way. We are. When the storm was raging over in LaGrange when we lived over there when I think Hurricane Hugo or one of them hit many years ago and it just kind of came inland and just really sat there and just kind of began to spin. I remember Stephanie grabbing the kids and we had a huge walk-in closet and went in there with a mattress and, and I remember her getting in there and I was checking some things outside and I walked in there and the kid, I walked in and they were like under a, a, a mattress teepee. Anybody ever been there? Don't make us think we're weird, okay? I know y'all do that too. Any bathtub folks get in the bathtub? with the, Okay. <laughs> I remember walking in. I don't know why I remember this so vividly, but I remember walking in and, and Tyler and Ashley were under that and maybe they had a light. I don't know. The power had already went out. And um, they were smiling ear to ear. <laughs> you know why? Because mom and dad wasn't panicking. Can I tell you something? 
God loves the moment when you're scared to death and you see no way out that you just lean into him and know that he's not panicking. He has an answer for the problem. See, he's the author and the finisher of your faith. He's just waiting for you to come to him. It's a, it, it really, Stephanie made a statement even, even more recently when we went through COVID and we went through like 23 days and we just sat at home and she's like, I, I wouldn't invite that on anyone. I don't want anyone to go through that. But you know what? We, we've never spent that much time together, Mark. I don't take that same sentiment, however. I, I didn't care for that part of being sick, but the, the point of reference is the same. Listen, sometimes when we go through hell on earth, that's where we meet him. And we just get to be one with him and know that he has the answers before we ever ask the questions. He says in Hebrews, he that comes to God must believe that he is, and he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek after him. Where are you running to today in this time of hurt, in this time of unknown? Are you running to a book? Are you running to a song? Are you running to a pastor? Listen, run to him. And give him, give him your heart and say, God, I don't know what to do here. As a dad, I don't know what to do. As a mom, as a wife, as a husband, as a child, just run to him and let him take you into that closet and just pull all the safety around you. Maybe put a smile back in your face and realize that even though there's no way out, he's the door. Thank you for joining us today at Northridge Church. We hope today's message inspired you in your walk with God. We hope you take your next step by connecting with us online at northridgethomaston.com.